Uh, moms and dads, if you've got a Bible, you can open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides of the tech booth back there. Feel free to go grab one. Borrow it if you need to borrow it. Or if you need a uh, copy of the Scripture that you can read um, and understand, that's a great translation. It's the translation I'll be preaching from this morning. Uh, you can just take that Bible with you. We'll be happy to buy more Bibles. That's not a problem. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to be. We're going to take the first 10 verses today. Um, there are some powerful words in here, and so let's go ahead and get to them. Uh, let's start in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants um, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's just pause right here because I don't want to get lost, uh, get too far here. When you're talking about bond servants, talking about the old world um, institution of slavery. So let's be clear on what that is. Um, I've argued in here before, we'll not go into all the details now, uh, but old world slavery, Roman Empire slavery, not the same as new world slavery, okay? It's, um, we're, not, we're not apples to apples. The closest relationship that we can find between old world slavery and 21st century uh, existence, would that, would, the closest relationship would be something along the lines of employer and employee. It is not exactly the same. Don't hear me saying that. Uh, but that's the closest thing that we could come to. And so um, when you read these passages, in particular, uh, in, in uh, the, the New Testament here, Paul writes um, about bond servants or slaves and masters quite a bit. Um, you can hear it as uh, employee and employer, again, although it's not necessarily exactly the same. But look what he says here. The, the basic message is this. It, instead of letting money um, define how you relate to one another as an employer-employee, as a master and a bondservant. Instead of letting that be the issue, instead, uh, let the gospel define how you do that. So he says here, uh, uh, at the end of verse 1, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In other words, how we interact Monday through Friday in our 8 to 5s, how we interact uh, speaks to um, not only <clears throat> our, our employment and, and not only providing for our family and stuff, but it speaks to the gospel. So we don't want to work in such a way that the name of God and the, the teaching, the gospel, if you will, would be reviled. That's the basic message. The not so subtle message is to uh, not so, I mean, it's not subtle at all. Don't let money be the defining thing. And when you think about um, your eight to five and, and how, or eight to six or you know, eight to eight, however much you have to work to get your job done. Um, when you think about that, the temptation is I'm doing this um, for a living, uh, but I'm experiencing no life in the middle of this. All I want is money out of this deal. Here's the thing. There's more to it than that. And there's always more to it than that. And a place where we spend a majority of our waking hours should be and can be a place where the gospel goes forth. So he says, verse 2, those who have believing masters, what would that look like? Verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. If you, have, if you work for a, a follower of Jesus, you got somebody up above you in management or something who's a follower of Jesus, don't be disrespectful for, uh, to them just because they're brothers. What does that mean? Uh, it means things like showing up on time. One of the most frustrating conversations I had um, with a Christian businessman, but this is back years and years ago now, was that he would hire believers 
uh, because he wanted that kind of work environment, he would hire believers and they would consistently show up late and their excuse was, oh, I just figured you'd show me some grace. It ought not be that way, folks. It ought not be that way. In fact, Paul calls us out on this. If, if you've got any of that in you, Paul calls us all out. Um, he said, don't be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. They must serve all the better since those who benefit, benefit from their good service are believers and beloved. So here's the thing. If you have a believer in Jesus uh, who's kind of in all the more reason you should work your tail off, all the more reason you should, I mean, do that most excellent work, not only because God is watching and not only because you get to honor Jesus, but because they are brothers, they are sisters in the Lord, and they are beloved by God. And, and therefore, uh, th they will benefit, if you will, from our good work. So it, it is a way, it is a way that we fulfill the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? This, this is that. So don't let money define that. Instead, uh, let the gospel define it. Now, contrast that with this next little passage, because what we're going to read about is these false teachers, and they were relating to the church in a way that the gospel should have defined their relationship, but you know what, the, what defined their relationship? Money. So where, the, where, the, where, the, um, where money could have been the defining factor, let the gospel define it. And now Paul's going to take on where the gospel is defining it, money's the factor. This, this ought not be either. Look at verse... Um, Three here, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, because if, you, if you're understanding the gospel right and if you're understanding the Bible right, it will always lead you towards godliness. There's always a, a practice that flows out of that. Verse four, he, listen to how Paul describes these people. He is puffed up with conceit and understands how much. Nothing. So you think they're supposed to be teachers, but they're puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. Verse, uh, continuing on, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. You know anybody like that? All they want to do is fight, uh, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Nobody's been guilty of that recently, right? In a Political conversation. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the, of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So the result of these false teachers relating to the church with money as the center instead of the gospel as the center of that relationship was absolutely terrible. Again, you got all of these terrible things. Puffed up, conceited, understanding nothing, uh, cravings for controversy, quarrels, envy, strife, all of these other terrible things. And Paul described them as depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They didn't really understand the truth. And the biggest problem, Paul boils it down, the biggest problem, he boils it down at the end of verse 5, Imagining, don't miss that part. It, they're, they're making this up. This is not the case. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Those who could have been defined by money, Paul says the gospel needs to be at the middle of that. Those for whom the gospel should have been at the middle, money was. And Paul's like, no, don't do that. Imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. Imagining... Imagining that godliness is a means of great gain, 
That seems like it still happens today, doesn't it? It seems like people use religion or the gospel or church or all sorts of things um, to, to um, pad their pockets and to, and to grow in material wealth. Does anybody think about any modern day examples of that? Do they show up on your TV late at night? I'll just give you a couple of quotes. Just a very brief internet search um, this week turned up too. This is from a man um, whose name, ironically, is Creflo Dollar. And this is what he said. Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. Hashtag prosperity in Christ. Hashtag wealthy living. Hashtag abundant life. Tweeted on the 7th of October, 2015. Can we just be clear about something? It's really hard for a follower of Jesus in sub-Saharan Africa to believe that junk right there. Further, it's really hard to go and preach to a, a, a person in sub-Saharan Africa who's living on a dollar a day or two dollars a day and look at him and go, oh, Jesus wants you to be rich. Furthermore, because I, you know, you've been around long enough, you know, I rarely name names up here. That's, that's generally not my MO. But listen, there are some things that we need to name names on. This is one of them. Folks who teach this kind of stuff, man, they, they are, <laughs> I don't want to be close to them when they stand to give an account for this. Because there are people in the world today who are buying into this and they're missing it. They're missing the gospel altogether because they think that they imagine that godliness is a means to great gain. That just continuing on. No, we got a couple of Louisiana people in here. Here's son of Louisiana here. Jesse Duplantis says this. The very first thing on Jesus' agenda was to get rid of poverty. Do what? I just, huh? I, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. It is a, and, and there's, we could continue on for days on this kind of stuff. There's more than just these as examples, just When you think, I want to dwell on this, I want to dwell on the good stuff. When you think that godliness is a means of gain, two terrible things happen, both of which are represented by this really awesome video. Watch this. This is a golf ball hitting a piece of steel at 150 miles an hour. You ready? That's what some of you look like when you get out of bed, you know. <laughs> How about that? Pretty amazing, isn't it? When it impacts, you've got this complete flattening of this, right? And then it ends up not going through the steel, but doing what instead? Going the other way. This is exactly what happens when people preach this kind of gospel that godliness is a means of gain. That's exactly what happens. The gospel gets perverted, misshapen, and then it gets reversed. 
goes the other way. So let me just explain that quickly. When you think that godliness is a, mean of, a means of gain, you pervert the gospel. You misshape the gospel. Why? Because it becomes about your faith. That's what these guys say. It is your faith uh, that allows you to claim a financial miracle or claim a healing miracle or whatever. No, 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 no. It's about your faith. And if it, the miracle didn't come, then it's uh, either God's fault or your fault, probably your fault. You didn't have the right kind of faith or the right uh, amount of faith or, or whatever. Instead, Jesus comes along and says crazy stuff like, if you've got the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, get up and move. Now, they don't read that part, though. It becomes about your faith, perverting the gospel. When they do that, it's about your faith. It's about your ability. It's about your desires. What do, what do you think God wants to bless you with? And it's about your well-being. God, make me more comfortable in this world. God instead is relegated. Instead of Savior and King and Lord and all the things that we've talked about, God is relegated to your errand boy instead of the most glorious creature, excuse me, the most glorious treasure who's ever existed. Instead of forsaking idolatry, you commit it because you give your life to money instead of Jesus. You misshape the gospel. But not just that. That'd be bad enough, but then you start going the other way. So you not only misshape it, but you also, you not only pervert it, but you also reverse the gospel. You are sent a different way because the question uh, is, instead of what Jesus has done, the question is what I can do. What I can, what, what can I do? Can I have enough faith? Can I believe God for this? Can I speak words? Can I, can I do these kinds of things? When I imagine that godliness is a means of gain, I don't focus on what Jesus has done already for me. I focus on what I can do for me. At its heart, it is religious to the core. It is religious to the core. It is religion, meaning it is about getting God on my side. And when I do so, when I focus on this, what often happens is I inoculate myself and others around me to the real gospel. Because if I'm saying, hey, God's going to do this for me, God's going to do this for me, God's going to do this for me, people start thinking, well, this is what God does for me. This is what he does for me. This is what he does for me. Instead of focusing on, this is what God has already done for us. He's already done for us because the gospel, the good news, if you're um, here this morning, maybe this is confusing to you, or maybe you're wondering why in the world we're talking about this. Here's the deal. The gospel is not about poor people becoming rich, and it's not about bad people becoming good. It's about dead people becoming alive. That's the gospel. Jesus didn't go to the cross and die uh, on that horrible, horrible instrument of execution and lay in the ground for three days and come back on the first Easter Sunday. He did not do that so that you, can, you and I could have larger bank accounts, folks. He just didn't. He is in the process of changing dead people into people who are very much alive, spiritually dead, separated from God, with no spiritual heartbeat, into a living, breathing, amazing creature who glorifies God with everything that they have and giving them abundant life. That's what he calls abundant life. And so, listen... If you're here this morning, please hear this. There may be all sorts of advantages or whatever. There may be all sorts of things that you get uh, as, as an American, as a person who uh, lives in suburbia, all that kind of stuff. The gospel is about none of those things. The gospel instead is about being separated from God and then being reconciled to God, being distant from God and then brought near to God, being um, an outsider and an orphan and being adopted into his family and becoming a son or a daughter of God. That's what the gospel is about. When godliness is a means of gain, you pervert that message 
And you actually send it back the other way and you often take others with you. So, in light of all of that, as I said, I want to concentrate on the good stuff here, not the bad. So let's keep reading here. I want to think about these four truths Um, If you've been around church at all, you probably have heard these before. These are good reminders for every one of us. Uh, This is uh, maybe not necessarily new stuff for you, but these are four truths that that people, when it comes to uh, generosity, when it comes to gain, when it comes to um, godliness, when it comes to those kind of things and how they mesh together, these are four truths that I want you to hang on to. Verse 6 is truth number one. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Hear that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Truth number one is this, that godliness is gain. It's not a means to gain. It's gain itself. When you get godliness, when you take on his character, when the gospel becomes real to you and the transformation begins happening in your life, that's gain. That's the best kind of gain. That's the the kind of thing that man, you could just hang on to for maybe an eternity or so. Godliness is gain. It's not a means to gain. It is gain. Does that mean you won't prosper financially and all that kind of stuff? The truth is, I I don't know. I I mean, not necessarily, but here's the thing. Whether you do or whether you don't, that pales in comparison to what you actually get. And what do you actually get? You get Jesus and a relationship with him. So Jesus tells this story in Matthew 13, 44. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. A guy's out walking in a field. And he's walking along and he stubs his toe on something. And after he gets done hopping around, um, he, he goes, like, what is that? And he goes to kick it again. He's like, wait a minute. He starts digging around, digging around, finds a huge treasure chest. He pops the treasure chest open and it is the most incredible treasure he's ever seen. He closes it back up, puts dirt back on it, goes and sells everything that he has. In his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has in order to buy that field. Why? Because he knew what he had. And people do all sorts of crazy stuff with that verse and that story. But listen, Jesus comes along to us and he tells us that story because we're the ones walking in the field and accidentally stubbing our toe. And all of a sudden we weren't looking for it. And we find in Jesus the greatest treasure ever, something that is worth selling everything in order to gain. Paul, the author of 1 Timothy writes to the Philippians this. You can just jot this down. Go look it up later. This is Philippians 3, verses 7 and following. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So anything in this world that was really awesome, I'm going, eh, I mean, that's nothing compared to Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss, good and bad, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Again, if you know that passage at all, it's a poop pile. That's what he says. Tell your teenager that. Uh, This rubbish, okay, that's what he's counting it all as rubbish. Why? Um, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, not this religious thing, uh, but in fact, a righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Nobody in the 
name it and claim it, health, wealth, and prosperity camp, loves the fellowship of God's sufferings. And Paul says, I want to know him like that. Oh, I want the power of the resurrection, but I want to know him in his sufferings in order that I may gain him. Godliness is gain. Paul, in the same letter, just point you one more place. To live, if you've been around church, you know this verse, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and dying is... Why? Because you get so much wealth? Why? Because you get the fullness of Jesus. Godliness is gain. That's a truth to remember. When you think about generosity, when you think about money, and when you think about godliness and gain, truth number one, it's godliness is gain. It's not a means to anything. It is gain. Verse 7 of 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Truth number two, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. None. Meaning what? Just to be clear, everything that you're working for right now, everything, everything that you're working for is going to be left to someone else. Everything. Does that mean it's not worth working for? Absolutely not. But it can grow. The desire for these things can grow to where it's out of perspective. So Paul drops this little nugget of verse 7 in there for this reason. That is a perspective giver. Everything that you're working for right now, everything is going to be left to someone else. The best that you can do is send it on ahead, right? To send it on ahead, to invest in the kingdom of God, to say there is something eternal that I can make a difference with, with this material, earthly stuff. I can make an eternal difference, and so I'm going to send it on ahead as best I can through my tithes, through my offerings, through being a generous person. I am blessed, and I will be a blessing. I will be a blessing. I haven't looked at the latest uh, number exactly. But at one point, there was a huge percentage, like 50% or something, um, of folks who lived on less than $2 a day in the world. I don't think I'm very rich. Listen, just a little perspective here. Just a little perspective. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses because everything gets left. Can I just give you a little secret here? When you get to heaven and see Jesus, you'll be glad you left everything. You'll be hauling stuff up. You'll be so happy to be with him. The rest of it, it just won't matter. So that's truth number two. Truth number three. Look at verse eight. But if... But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Just put that on a refrigerator magnet somewhere. I'm sure that'll sell really well. Uh, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Here's truth number three. Greed leads to pain. Paul, why did he fight? Why did he fight so hard to be content with less? Why did he define his own contentment as food and clothing here? God, I just I need something to eat and I need a shirt on my back. He didn't even bother for a place to sleep. He's just like, I'll just lay here by the road if I need to. Why, why did he fight to be content with less? Because he knew the danger of having more. So he has to 
fight against that. <clears throat> Greed leads to pain. Um, we are, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. I said, what's a good example of that? She goes, we're all Menendez brothers. You remember the mid-90s case? Eric and uh, the brother Lyle, right? Somebody, something like that. Offed mom and dad in order to burn their inheritance in the first six months after they killed their parents. They spent over a million dollars in the first six months. Spiritually, we're all Menendez brothers. We would gladly take what the Father wants to give us and separate ourselves from him apart from seeing Jesus as the true treasure. Whether we work too hard so that Sunday isn't a priority, whether it's not us working, but we're trying to um, give opportunities and, and all sorts of involvement to our kids, and so Sunday becomes less of a priority, whatever it may be, Paul calls it a snare. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. My wife's doing a little, just a little picture of this. My wife's doing some painting in our little office at home. Um, honey, can you come take the blinds down, pull the blinds down, set them on the ground? Okay, I'm done. Put the blinds back up. I got to put the blinds back up, and I have apparently kicked the, the pull string. So I go to hang them back up. Anybody been fishing before and, you know, you got your line all tangled up, and all of a sudden there's a blossom of line. This is what this looked like, except it was not fishing wire. It was strings for the blind. So there's just blossom. This is rat's nest of stuff. And I'm like, this is not good. Because if I were fishing, you know what I'd do? I'd just pull that thing out, cut that line. Well, you can't do that with curtain, I mean, with the blinds, right? I mean, so I'm just going, oh, this is not. So I sit there. It probably took me 30 minutes. One little string, pull it out, pull this knot out, pull this knot out, pull this knot out. And in the middle of all of that, this is the thought that occurred to me. And some people fall into a snare, and they pierce themselves with many pangs. I'm like, that's me right now, many pangs. I couldn't, I couldn't have left it that way because it, it did not look good. That's the truth. Furthermore, I couldn't have left it that way because it didn't work. I go to try to put the blinds down thinking I'll work on this tomorrow in the light. No, no, no. Uh-uh. It won't work. Our lives don't appear good. and our, They don't give off a good appearance and our lives don't work when we're snared by temptations toward greed. Greed leads somewhere. It leads to pain. And Jesus is very clear about this. You can't serve two masters. You either hate the one and love the other, despise the one, devoted to the other. You can't serve God and money. That's what he said. Matthew 6, 24. Last truth. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Truth number four is that loving money leads to evil. Loving money leads to evil. We can think of example upon example upon example. Government, personal, worldwide, very local. We can think of all of these examples of how loving money leads to evil. Let's be very clear and let's read the text carefully. It's not money that's the root of all sorts of evil. That's the saying a lot of us grew up on. That's just not the truth. It's the love of money. So if you feel like God's blessed you financially, listen, um, be a good steward of that. That's what it says. It's not your money that's the problem. It's what your heart does with it. 
It's what your heart does with it. The love of money is the, it is, leads to all sorts of evil. Why? Because what you love will come out in your life. That's what it says. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. The tragedy is when people wander away from eternal treasure thinking that earthly treasure is better. There's a story in Luke 18, it's in other, Matthew 19, other places. A guy rolls up on Jesus. He says, hey, what, what can I do to have eternal life? Jesus looks at him and goes, I, uh, pretty religious guy. Why don't you start by following the commandments, figuring out how to do that? Well, I've been doing these since I was little. Oh. Okay, one, one thing that's still left. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven. The guy's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought this was a walk the aisle, sign the card, and off we go kind of thing. Heaven when I die. No. No. And the guy walked away from Jesus. And Jesus' response was this. The Bible says that Jesus was very sad because he loved him. Here was the greatest treasure in the entire universe right in front of this guy. And he turned around and walked away because he thought earthly treasure was better. They pierce themselves with many pains. They wander away from the faith. There was an interesting phenomenon in World War II, at the end of World War II, uh, on the little islands out in the Pacific. Uh, you know, Marines would come in, Marines... Uh, thank you. Uh, the Marines would come in, uh, they'd land, they'd clear some space so they could start setting uh, small planes down and small planes would bring supplies and they'd create more space and eventually hangars and all that kind of stuff, big landing areas so you could get supplies in and get supplies out to where you needed to go. Well, there are native people on these islands and they'd look and they'd go, what's going on here? Uh, it became an interesting phenomenon as people studied and they called them the cargo cults because they thought that these people were bringing cargo as if they were gods, right? They even were, set up a deity kind of personified called Tom Navy. And every time they saw an airplane, I mean, you can imagine being a, a, an islander and all of a sudden there's a huge uh, uh, tractor there that's pushing a tree down. Would have taken you a day to cut it down. It's moving it out of the way. A plane comes in and stuff unloads and you're like, what in the world is happening? You have no um, idea what's going on. You've never seen a wheel, much less a, a motorized vehicle. Now all of a sudden people are tootling around your home island in a Jeep. I mean, like, what's the deal? So they thought these people were gods. They call them the cargo cults. And uh, running across this this uh, this week in study, listen. On some of these remote islands today, the cargo cults still thrive. They venerate religious relics, and this is funny, like Zippo lighters. I mean, imagine fire on an instant, right? Cameras, eyeglasses, ballpoint pens, nuts and bolts, and so on. As civilization has begun to penetrate some of these cultures, their fascination with cargo has not diminished. In fact, missionaries that have been sent there to these areas where cargo cults have flourished have received a warm reception at first because the cargo cultists view, uh, they view their arrival as the second coming of the cargo god. But they're looking for cargo and not for the gospel. 
and the missionaries say they find it very difficult to penetrate the materialism that is at the essence of this. I wonder if that could have been written about suburbia instead. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to close. These four truths to remember, to hold on to. Godliness is what is actually gained. You can't take it with you. Greed leads to pain, and loving money leads to evil. Listen, I'm going to give you a second just to reflect on this. What do I, what, what there do I need to walk out of here and apply? Out of these truths, which one do I need most reminding of? These four things. Take a minute, identify one, ask for the Holy Spirit to apply that to your life in some way, and then I'm going to pray and we'll stand and sing together.